In terms of looking after our planet, it might be appropriate to say that we've cooked it. The water is warmer, the ice is melting and our forests are disappearing. Yet scientists and journalists have known and been talking about this for years, so why has there been a breakdown in communicating this emergency to the general public? And why aren't we doing more? This is Ideas at the House, and I'm Edwina Throsby. Today's episode is a very timely discussion between a bunch of journalists from Australia and around the world. It's chaired by Kerry O'Brien and includes Kyle Pope, Desi Anwar, Anna Rose and Tim Flannery. Welcome. Uh, I would also uh, like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're on today, elders past, present and emerging. Uh, and I'd also like to welcome our panellists to, I think, an important discussion. The world's first climate change conference of scientists from 50 nations in Geneva in February 1979 identified an urgent necessity to act to avoid a global catastrophe. The only thing that has changed in 40 years is that the evidence has just got depressingly stronger. Both data and visual evidence, oceans warming, iconic reefs dying, glaciers melting, rainforests burning, bushfires becoming more catastrophic, storms intensifying. Yet global action has proceeded at a relative snail's pace. I can't think of an issue as critical as this one, with the possible exception of wars, where the misinformation has been more prevalent or more effective in the face of irrefutable scientific evidence. You might argue at the edges. You cannot argue at the heart of this evidence. Yet uh, it's a massive challenge for traditional mainstream journalism as it battles the digital disruption that's threatening its own future. How to effectively cover the science and politics of climate change? How to cut through in a way that we've signally failed to do without abandoning the integrity of our craft in the process? And uh, you all would be aware that you've all got a stake in this or you wouldn't be here. Uh, one response that this panel's going to explore today is a project called Covering Climate Now started earlier this year in the US by the prestigious Columbia Journalism Review with The Nation, the oldest continuous weekly magazine in America and also The Guardian newspaper. They want to intensify climate coverage and make it more impactive. It's, quote, a new playbook for journalism that's compatible with the 1.5 degree future that scientists say must be achieved. How to do a better job without becoming activists. Now, our panellists include Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Review Journal and one of the guiding lights behind covering climate now. He's been a foreign correspondent and editor with a decade uh, at the Wall Street Journal, editor-in-chief of the New York Observer, deputy editor of Condé Nast Portfolio magazine. Uh, Desi Anwar um, is news anchor and talk show host for CNN Indonesia based in Jakarta. Uh, she co-founded Indonesia's first news channel, Metro TV, uh, where she was also news anchor and cut her teeth in the country's first commercial TV network, RCTI. Uh, she's also been a writer columnist uh, for various newspapers. Anna Rose is a campaigner for climate action and author whose activism began at school in Newcastle two decades ago with a successful campaign to stop approval of a coal mine in the Hunter. She's strategic projects officer with Farmers for Climate Change, a governor of WWF Australia, and featured with former Howard Minister Nick Minchin in a memorable ABC documentary called 
I can change your mind on climate change, but you couldn't. <laughs> a little bit, a well, little shift. Fortunately, nor could he. Uh, so I uh, also wrote a book on her experience. Tim Flannery is a paleontologist, explorer and conservationist, a leading writer on climate and the 2007 Australian of the Year, which I remember well, Tim, because I interviewed him on the day. Right. His books include the award-winning bestseller, The Weathermakers, Here on Earth and Atmosphere of Hope, and he's chief counsellor on the Climate Council, which has some of Australia's leading climate scientists and disseminates the latest authoritative climate news to the media. What they do with it might be another matter. Uh, Tim, I want you to start uh, by giving us just a concise update uh, of where the global science is today. Sure, look, I'll, I'll do that, Kerry, but I'd like to just ask, I can't see the audience well, if there are any young people who are, or anyone who would find this particularly distressing, I'd like to give you an opportunity just to step out for three minutes. There's an enormous amount of climate stress for people who deal with the issue every day, and I just don't want to add to that unnecessarily. So if you feel like you want to go out, please do. Look, the news is unrelentingly bad in terms of climate change, really. Um, last year, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere increased by 1.7%, very large amount, and the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere went up by 3.5 parts per million. That was the highest ever recorded single annual increment of CO2. Um, and this is happening at the end of the critical decade. This was the decade when scientists warned that we need to take action this decade or we will suffer severe consequences. The sad truth is that we're now committed to a one and a half degree world. We can't, there just isn't any wriggle room to get out of that. And it's important to understand what committed means. It, it, our situation's a bit like a very, very unhealthy person who's eating three hamburgers a day and having three glasses of beer and getting no exercise. It might feel great when you eat that hamburger and, and drink the beer, but what you are doing is committing yourself to an early death, right? If, because of a lifestyle which is just unsustainable. And that is the position we are in. So we are now committing ourselves to one and a half degrees of warming and probably two degrees of warming. And can I say, over my lifetime of dealing with this issue, I've been to COP meetings, I've seen the global agreement, I've seen scientific report after scientific report, and none of that has altered our trajectory. None of it. We are headed towards two degrees, three degrees, four degrees by the end of the century, whatever the end point is going to be, we can't say. But that is the reality that we face. And we can already see the consequences of this. We've seen global hunger increase three years running now due to extreme weather events. Our ability to feed ourselves has been compromised by climate change. We've seen major water stress in large cities like Chennai and Cape Town. And these, these are things that we didn't see before but we're now seeing as a result of climate change. If you want to look at sea level impacts, just go to your local beach. Keep your eyes open for signs of coastal erosions or just watch the media, you know, structures that were built by competent engineers to stay safe from rising seas are now collapsing or under threat because of rising sea levels and change conditions. Mm. We are on track, Kerry, unfortunately, to live in a four-degree world by about 2100. And that four-degree world, I just, I beg you all, go and find a map that shows you what things look like in a four-degree world. Scientists tell me that there's probably resources in that sort of world for a billion people, right? Not the seven billion we have on the planet at the moment. And there are young people, including my children, who will most likely still be alive 
in 2100. So that's what we're committing them to. It is just so frustrating. We should be in a full emergency situation. Instead, we have a government that's deliberately putting their, their foot on the brake in terms of action. And I just have one message for them, really. This is getting very, very personal. And I want them to stop threatening my children. I want real action on this because without it, over the next few years, the next time I read this, there will be no hope. Okay, so Tim, to, to move to a point where we can talk constructively about how we, as those with stakes in the game, not just the, the broader public, but those who actually have a responsibility here, uh, and, and on this stage, journalists, scientists, activists, um, we, we've got to understand the failure, I think. So, so where do you place... Let's put the politicians over here and the vested interests here for now. What part of the, of the responsibility do scientists shoulder for the failure to cut through? Personally, I feel like it's a large part. We've known for 20 years now how bad the situation is. We've tried one strategy after the other. None of them have got the cut through that we need. And um, I, I, I can think of... I wish I'd been less naive. I wish I'd known 20 years ago what I know now as a scientist, and I think we may have been more effective. What would you have done differently? I think I would have seen those opposing action for what they really are. They are uh, selfish, self-interested people willing to lie and destroy my children's future for their own short-term benefit. Whether it's a minister going from Minister of Resources onto the board of a coal mining company but, or whatever. But even so, how, how differently you're supposed to be... Uh, well, I'm not just talking about you, but, but we, we look to our scientists to be clinical, truthful, effective, and once they've got the science, to spread it, to yes. communicate it. Yeah. Yeah. So has it been a failure to communicate? And how much is that at the door of the scientists and how much, from your experience, has it been a failure of journalism to respond adequately? The key point, Kerry, is that we've been telling the truth as we see it, but the opposition is played by a totally different set of rules. They can lie, they can divert people's attention, whatever, and the media has been treating that as of equivalent value to the scientific message. So two sides to the debate, when in fact there isn't. There's one side and then there's people trying to mislead. And we haven't been able to fight against that. I, I don't know how you fight against that. But what I do know is that we need journalists to understand that this is not, this is not two sides to a debate. Yeah. Uh, Desi Anwar, you actually report from a city that's sinking under your feet. So, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what impact climate change is having on Indonesia and how effective the media has been in reporting on it? Well, actually, you know, we don't have in Indonesia, we don't have the luxury of you know, debating the science of it because we're living, we don't have to wait for the 21st century for us to start feeling the impact. As, as you mentioned, um, when I'm invited here to Sydney, I'm really quite happy to be here just to get away from the air pollution in Jakarta. I mean, Jakarta is one of the most polluted cities in Southeast Asia, and you quite um, rightly said in a couple of days ago, actually a few days ago, the government says that we will be moving the capital from Jakarta to West um, Kalimantan, East Kalimantan, and I'm... Uh, just explain you know, what that might involve. Well, no, the, Oh, it's, for a start, it's going to be a huge endeavour, and I don't think it's a project that can 
uh, you know, take place in two or three years. It's, it's a long-term project. And the other thing is the cost of it, who's going to bear the cost. But the, let me just give you an understanding of where Indonesia is in all of this. We're a country of 17,000 islands, and if the sea level rises, obviously there'd be a lot of the uh, islands uh, sinking, including Jakarta. But this is, this is not just because of nature, so to speak. A lot of it is actually man-made. One of the reasons why Jakarta is sinking, because for the past um, whatever, uh, decades, and you know, there is no piped water system. So everybody, you know, every time there's a building going up, people are just taking water from the ground. So hence, it caused subsidence in the land. And the other thing is, you know, we have mangrove uh, forests, for example, that should be protecting the coastlines. And, you know, people are chopping down uh, trees because of uh, basically overcrowding habitation and so on and so forth. And Indonesia, uh, even though we are, we have the lungs of the world in Kalimantan, in Borneo, we're actually one of the greatest emitters of CO2 and greenhouse gases. And so we have, you know, all these things where human activities are actually contributing to a large part of what's going on. An annual um, forest fires, it's because of peatland burning, because of deforestation, because of land conversion, because of land clearing, uh, substituting you know, forest areas for palm oil, and, you know, for example. And the other thing is actually human behavior. And we in West Java, we have a river. I mean, if you Google it, it's called Chitarum, and it's like, it's called the plastic river, and it's supposed to be one of the most toxic and polluted rivers in the world. So these things such as, you know, clean water, clean air. I, if I'm in Jakarta, I go around with a wearable air purifier, you know, because it's, it's just so polluted that the AQI is not, I mean, it's not even red, it's purple. And what, you, what we're doing is actually we're killing ourselves. There's more respiratory disorders because of living in polluted areas. And my concern, and I think it's, it is time to move the capital, but whether this would solve the issue of saving uh, you know, the environment, is I'm not so sure, because in Kalimantan, you know, there's protected areas, there's forests, and also there's a, there's a lot of um, coal mining there. So how would that impact? So I think the question is not, you know, what journalists are doing and so on and so forth. A lot of the, pro a lot of the uh, topics that I personally show on my programs is environmentally related because these have become our headlines. Every year, headlines about forest fires burning and, um, you know, that about becomes the regular thing. Every year, every time there's a rainy season, we get flooded. And when it how, ma how many of these things relate to climate change? And, and in your reporting, are you identifying it as such? What is there an awareness of climate change with all of these things happening around you? Well, the, or are lives so kind of focused on just struggling to survive? Well, you know, the, care, the thing about climate change, what it does is it produces extreme weather patterns, yes. extreme weather systems. Mm. So when it's, and it's a rainy season, it's not just the rainy season, it's a lot of rain. And what does that mean? That means it causes a, a much larger you know, areas of flooding. And the other thing is it causes massive amounts of landslides. Mm. And it causes, uh, you know, if, for example, uh, there's a large storm or even, you know, uh, coming in from the seas, it causes tsunamis. And that destroys a lot of our clean water resources. So these are real... Oh. 
you know, issues that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day level. And on the other hand, you know, Indonesia is one of the biggest producers of plastic waste. We are polluting our seas, we're polluting our rivers, and... But you don't mind us sending ours up to you as well? well. Absolutely, and no, th no this, is, this is a real issue as well. I mean, for example, in countries like the UK of Europe, one of the ways for them to actually address their garbage problems is just to export it to our parts of the world. And now we're saying, like, you know, we don't want your rubbish, because what happens is when the rubbish arrives, you know, the, the way that people deal with rubbish, and this is also because of the lack of infrastructure, is that people burn rubbish. So what do you do with rubbish? You burn so that you create more emission, you throw them in the, in the nearest river, and then you also, you know, you, you pollute your seas or you throw them into landfills or piles. And we had, a few years ago, we actually had a, you know, a, a garbage dump actually blowing up because of the amount of methane mm. that's produced by, uh, you know, the, you know the, just the organic matter. So, so this is not sort of an intellectual or existential debate or an intergenerational thing between, you know, the millennials worried about their future and the baby boomers thinking like, oh, we don't want to keep our standard of living. No, we are actually dealing with it now. And I think this is something that everybody needs okay. to address. So how effective is the Indonesian media at, at both reporting but penetrating behind the what to the why and how responsive is government on climate change and, well, and how effective or ineffective are the vested interests that okay. we all know. Uh, again, this is not quickly. a... Yeah. <laughs> that was only... <laughs> no, 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 because, you know, when it comes to dealing with climate change, Indonesia, and if you remember 2007, the Bali roadmap that eventually led to 2015, COP21, it all started in Bali. Indonesia is the most sort of gung-ho. We actually have very ambitious targets. We want to reduce our emission, if business as usual, but uh, 2030 by 29% which is very, very big. We want to have our energy mix of 23% renewables by 2025. And we also want to, you know, introduce a lot of clean energy. So it's not about political will. It's not about government awareness. They set themselves these targets. But are they meeting them? No, because the question is, nobody really knows how to do it. And when they want to do it, nobody really knows how best to enforce it. Mm. But I don't think it's just the government's fault. It's everybody's fault. You know, when it comes to keeping, taking care of the environment, each one of us, every single person on this planet is responsible. We, as individuals, we produce a lot of waste. Mm. Manufacturers produce a lot of waste in their packaging. So it's, it has to be, it's not like it's a journalist's responsibility to remind, or it's the government's responsibility. No, everybody wants to do the best of the planet. The question is how and uh, how to implement it. And I think this is something that we all need to, to work out, especially in a country like, sorry, in, in Indonesia, it's like, like Australia, we're still developing. So there's this question of you know, sustainability, yeah. is it compatible with development and so well, on. The same so it's, there, it's a different, are, kind, it's a different yeah. kind of conversation where we come from. Understood. Um, Anna, you've pinned your hopes as an activist, or you certainly did early on, uh, on the belief that change can happen from the bottom up. How has that gone? <laughs> we are in a climate emergency, as Tim said, and we have made some progress, but nowhere near enough when you look at the scale of the crisis. 
So I think what Desi said about everyone having a role to play is really critical. You know, here we're talking about journalists and journalism and the media have an incredibly important role to play in being more courageous in the way that they report on these issues. But it's not just about journalists, especially these days where anyone can write a blog post or do an Instagram post and actually reach their own friends and family. And we know this from research done by the CSIRO in Australia in that the most trusted communicators on climate change are climate scientists, but the second most trusted, not journalists, people's friends and family. And so we all have a role. You mean you'd trust family before you'd trust a journalist? Well, other than you, Kerry. <laughs> I don't understand. Go on. <laughs> and, and so we can actually all play a really important role in sharing the story in our own networks in ways that make sense for people in our networks. And, you know, How I work... How do you measure that? How do you measure the success of that? Well, we measure it in attitudes to climate change and we measure it in... We know most Australians support action on climate change, but politicians don't really care about that. They care about how many people are willing to vote and to change their vote over climate, which means is it a top three issue? And in the last election in Australia, it was a top three issue in some places, but not every place. So what are the, what are the ways you are working with media of all types? What, mm. what are the key ways that you're... And, and how effective are you finding that? Well, I work with a number of different climate change organisations. The, the biggest one at the moment that I'm supporting is a group called Farmers for Climate Action. I'm from a farming family and for me, you know, seeing that as not an environmental story, not about polar, pear, polar bears, but actually about food security, about people's livelihoods, about rural and regional Australia. So the farmers in our network, we spend a lot of time connecting them with journalists, particularly rural and regional journalists, so that they can put their own voices out there um, in a way that makes sense to those rural communities. And that's been really effective. We have seen a huge jump in the type of coverage um, and the amount of coverage in rural and regional Australia since we started doing this work. And it's important to note that there's actually a group um, that has helped us to do this, which is part of the Climate Council um, that Tim runs, a group called the Climate Media Centre. And they are a group of ex-journalists who help organisations like Farmers for Climate Action and other smaller climate groups to get trained in how to talk to journalists because often there's a big disconnect between you know, the 30 seconds that a journalist might have to listen to a story and the way that a farmer will tell his or her story. So media training, help connecting to journalists, and they've also been doing some really great work actually taking journalists on trips, like to the South Australian Big Battery, so that they can have those transformational experiences. So in the climate movement in Australia, there's a lot of work that has been done from many organisations, including the Climate Media Centre, to try to help journalists understand better and give them the spokespeople and the facts that they might need to do a better job. But I think there's still a gap with many journalists feeling that if they are going to push the envelope a bit, that they'll get... Um, I guess that they won't get the permission to do that from their editors or that they'll be seen as crossing this line of impartiality. And in fact, you know, when I wrote my book um, back in 2012, I had some amazing support um, in terms of editing from a really senior Australian journalist, but that was done on the condition that no one ever find out you know, who that was or what help was provided in case um, their reputation was seen as you know, too climate. Do you, ever, do you ever get the line from journalists, look, we'd love to write this, but, uh, but it doesn't sell newspapers or it doesn't rate? 
I think that is behind some of the reason that the scale of the coverage doesn't match the scale of the crisis is that people feel that the ratings aren't there. But then you look at, there are some examples of um, fantastic initiatives like in the UK when The Guardian decided that they would, this was back in 2015, do a huge push on climate reporting in the lead up to the UN talks and also basically joined the divestment campaign and helped launch the divestment campaign with 350 and with Bill McKibben. And from what I understand, that got a huge amount of support and interest from the public in Britain at least. And there's another great example in Australia where weather reporters, they've partnered um, on the ABC and Channel 7 with Monash. Uh, there's a part of Monash University that focuses on climate communication. So <coughs> they've been partnering with the weather reporters to incorporate climate news into the weather report. And I don't think that has affected the ratings of the weather at all. People are still going to tune in. <laughs> so, Kyle Pope, this is where you come in. You, you, you've co-organised a media call to us <coughs> around a, um, a different approach to climate change news coverage, certainly to hike the coverage in America and in the process attacking media complacency while the world goes to hell in a handbasket, if I could put it that way, which, which led to this project called Covering Climate Now. Now, how exactly is that going to work and, and why have you found it necessary? Um, the way we approach this is, and first, uh, you know, I sort of want to let Tim and the scientists off the hook a bit. I mean, I think they have been quite effective in telling the story about what's going on and why it's important. The problem, the problem is that the, that the media hasn't been interested in it. I mean, I, you know, if you, if you listen to what everybody here has said, the scale of what's going on in our world is enormous, and it's an, I, I see it as an enormous failure of journalism. Um, our job as reporters is to like chronicle these, these sorts of things that are happening, and we're not doing it. If you look at, I mean, the numbers in, in the U.S. are actually, the, the scale of the climate coverage is worse in the U.S. than it is in a lot of other parts of the world. Um, if you look at the three, for example, the three big broadcast networks um, and their top shows ABC, CBS, and NBC. They combined devoted uh, just over two hours to climate for all of them for the entire year. Um, and that, by the way, was 45% less than they devoted in 2017. Um, in 2016, we had a presidential campaign where it was a ridiculous campaign. We had a ton of presidential debates. Not a single question about the climate was asked. That staggered me. In all of those debates. And by the way, that was the same thing that happened in 2012 and the same thing that happened in 2008 and the same thing that's happened throughout the history of these debates. It's changing now, but this is the problem that we're dealing with. When the IPCC report came out in May, about half of the newspapers in America did not mention it, did not mention this thing that, that we talked about. With the fact that we have a dozen years to change our economy entirely um, or face this peril that Tim outlined. So we view this as um, this is, we're, we're failing at our jobs as storytellers. So what we've tried to do is, you know, we've, we've thought a lot about all of the issues that everybody's talked about, about why journalism hasn't responded. Um, it's an unusual place for us to be. I run the Columbia Journalism Review, which is a, which is a, a, a newsroom that does both, it's primarily a watchdog of journalism. But we have, this is the first time we've ever sort of set out to kind of organize the, the US press and the world press around the coverage of a single topic. And what we've told people is like, we're not gonna tell you what to write. 
We don't know what's going on in your community. You know that better. Just commit to doing more. Just try. Just try for a week. So we've targeted this week of September 16th, which is the week before the UN Climate Summit in New York. And we've said, just do more, figure out what that looks like, and then we'll come, at, we'll come to you afterwards and talk to you about what you learned. Do you, do you need more access to scientists? Do you need story ideas? Do you need to th rethink how your newsroom is structured? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we have now about 170 news organizations have signed on for this thing from CBS News, Bloomberg, um, Vox, Huffington Post, The Guardian, the Asahi Shimbun. Um, news outlets from around the world have signed on. It may end up being the biggest effort ever to, to sort of organize mm. the press around a, a topic like this. So um, we're optimistic that there, I, I do think that there's change in the air. I mean, I mentioned what, was ha what happened in the last presidential campaign. This cycle, um, CNN is, has already committed to a debate just about climate, which is something, I mean, it obviously completely changes the game. But is it still, uh, I mean, it seems to me, uh, I, I certainly accept your, 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 your overview broadly, but if, you, if we just look at Australia for a moment, there have been times, I mean, the ABC, the public broadcaster, has been accused uh, over years for being obsessed with climate change. And some of that has dropped off. It's had an effect. Uh, it's dropped off somewhat with newspapers as well. But there have been times when, when we have had, if not saturation coverage on climate change in, change in intense moments, we've had strong coverage. And I do think that there is a very real uh, concern amongst journalists about how to tell the story in a fresh way that they feel people maybe have stopped listening or they've turned off or they feel they know the signs, even though waters get muddied and so on. I mean, do you acknowledge that that's a, a genuine part of the problem? Not in the US, it's not. No. Um, we have not had that problem with saturation coverage. Um, <laughs> it just happens to be the case. Um, what we're trying to do is, 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 um, is to get people to, to not silo the, the climate coverage, because I think that's what turns people off. If you send up a flag saying, okay, get ready, we're gonna have a climate change story, um, that puts them in a different mindset than if you just said, you know, right now, even as we speak, there's a category four hurricane headed to Florida, um, and it's predicted to be among the most deadly hurricane seasons again. Um, that's a climate yeah. crisis story. I mean, and, and, and that's obvious, but then, it gets, then you get down to really interesting stories like, you know, in Texas, where I happen to grow up, um, I was talking to one of our partners. The high school football team in Texas can't practice in full pads in August anymore because it's too hot. That's a climate change story. Tell it that way. And, um, you know, somebody, um, Anna was talking about farmers. I mean, they are seeing every day what's happening to them. And to sort of connect those stories to climate, I think, is, is, where, the, is where the journalistic yeah. job is. And by the way, just one other thing, the, this notion that people don't read these stories, um, and that is a turnoff for news organizations. One, I take issue with the notion that our job should be dictated on what people should read. Otherwise, we would just be writing about the Kardashians all the time, yeah. right? So we, we shouldn't, that should not be our determinant on what we, what's news to us. The second thing is, The Guardian is an amazing example. They, they'll tell you that the number one category of stories that gets people to donate to The Guardian are climate stories. That is, that is the biggest revenue driver for subscriptions for The Guardian of any other category. Allow me to keep playing devil's advocate. Uh, isn't The Guardian simply uh, providing those stories to people who 
uh, almost totally would already be believers on, on the need for drastic action on climate change. Definitely. I mean, it definitely fits into their brand. How do you get to the rest? Well, I mean, that's why I'm really excited that, you know, that Bloomberg, a business uh, news service, is signed on to this. That CBS News is signed off. I think that I think the changes happening in the world are just so undeniable. And, you know, you talk about trust in the media. One of the things that feeds mistrust is when people see this gap between what is happening in their life and what is appearing on their television. Like, this is happening to me. Why am I, why am I not reading this? Why am I not watching it? That feeds mistrust. Yeah. Tim? Could I just say here, look, I think the news is one thing, but policy is what is key. We know what works in this country. For 18 months, we had a carbon tax here, a very modest one. It was the last time that our emissions ever went down. Soon as we removed that carbon tax, they just started rising again, right? So what we need, I think, is not just news about climate change, we need sensible discussions around the policies that actually work. And the media has a big role to play there. Just, you know, the, the kind of lies that were told around the, the carbon tax here was that you know, a leg of lamb had cost you $100 for roast leg of lamb, I mean, crazy stuff like that. I don't know how that was ever treated credibly by anyone, but it was treated credibly by our media. Tim, you, so with the Climate Council, you act as a... You, you endeavour to to assist with stories, promote uh, new science stories? Uh, I mean, yeah. how, is, how, do you, how responsive have you, are you finding the media on that and how effective is it? Well, we actually run study tours. So we take journalists and they can uh, take them to somewhere where things are happening in an interesting way. We had one story come out which, uh, this year which I think was fabulously impactful. It was a story about coal in Germany and how the German government is retiring the coal industry without a single job loss in that whole sector. And that was, that was front page news in The Guardian, admittedly, but was widely read because you know, to, that's the ambition we need to have. We need to bring the whole community along with us. We need those structural adjustment packages and commitment to people's welfare in those old industries that are changing. Yeah, we can do it. It died in the bum as a story here, didn't it? I d oh, well, I don't know. We've got, got front-page coverage in the Australian. I didn't see yeah. what happened after that. Must have, it, must have felt that was a bit of a break. It should, it should have been front-page on the Charters Towers bugle and wherever yeah. else in North yeah. Queensland, but, yeah. you know, yeah. where this is an issue. It was shared a lot by people who are actually working in the area of transitioning Australia's coal centres, like yeah. the Latrobe Valley and the Hunter Valley. Like, I saw the, that story shared so much between people working in those areas, and so sometimes it's not actually about um, the front page of the Australian or reaching everyone in Australia. It's actually about being really targeted, and I think that feeds onto that point about the Guardian. Like, yes, most of the people who subscribe to the Guardian already support action on climate change, and we could therefore say they are we're preaching to the choir. But the choir traditionally, you know, in a church, they're the ones who sing the message to the congregation. So actually the choir or the people who already support have a really important role in then going on and sharing those stories with other people who aren't there yet. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, Kerry, I think a large part of the role that we journalists, and, and uh, I cover it a lot, on you know these issues, but I, I think it's it's a mistake to say oh you know this is economic issues, this is social issues, and there's a climate issues. I mean the whole <laughs> this permeates 
everything that we do. For example, every time there's a drought, you know, and the crops fail and the farmers are impacted, and the, you know, then it becomes a policy whether to import, for example, um, food from other countries. I mean, this becomes an economic issue, for example, and if there is scarcity in resources, then it becomes potential for conflicts like in climate refugees, for example, and this is already happening. Now, the things that we do as a journalist is actually, okay, look, the government says, you know, they're mainstreaming this green economy into their, uh, the policies, and, you know, we're uh, they're very much a supporting of the sustainable development goals and so on and so forth, but we have to keep questioning the how and how effective these policies and I think I completely agree with you, Tim, because, for example, one of the targets is the energy mix for, uh, in Indonesia should be 23% renewables by 2025. Now, we're already almost 2020, and at the moment where it stands, it's currently at 13%. Now, how can you add an extra, you know, fifth, you know, the 10 or 12 percent by 2025 is just not feasible when, for example, it's still cheaper to get our energy from fossil fuels, from coal, you know, when the price of coal is, is cheap, when it's much more expensive to invest in renewables than it is, for example, to uh, invest in fossil fuels. And the other thing is, of course, you know, the economy, you know, we are now becoming a net importer of oil. But one thing that Indonesia, uh, you know, what we're doing is actually increasing our palm oil production. And because of the, you know, the ban or the moratorium or whatever in, in Europe, for example, now the government is thinking, well, what can we do with all these oils? And this is biofuel. And I'm kind of questioning, well, biofuel means that you know, if you have 20% uh, in the diesel coming from palm oil, or then 30%, 40%, 50%, is this a good way of mitigating? Is this a good way of dealing with you know, these issues? Because monoculture is obviously very de detrimental to um, you know, the environment, plus clearing up a lot of lands in order to grow palm oil. That's another you know, well, a possible you know, potential uh, climate problems. Um, well, so, which, which you, know, you know, that kind of thing. It's how effective and whether it, it's going to work or whether it's actually just, you know, because what we need are actually real mitigation, real action. For example, if we know that the coastal area is prone to uh, seawater coming in or tsunamis, and you just well, make sure that there are no people living there or, you know, the spatial issues is very important. How to provide fresh water to a city without you know, uh, digging up uh, the fresh water from the ground, because at, at the end of the day, we're actually you know, creating a very um, unsafe home for ourselves. So what, you, what you're really coming to is the policy consideration, and I think that is, that is the harder part. I mean, there's so, much, there's so much about this, and we've only got a few minutes before we go into audience questions, but uh, on the one hand, uh, we get excited in this country, and certainly the, the politicians and the media get excited when a single boat of asylum seekers might actually break through the ring of Australia's great defence circle and, uh, and land here, when uh, if you wanted to write a scarce... It doesn't have to be a scarce story, it's a very real one. And you'd be very well aware of the potential movement of climate change refugees if these temperature rises really yeah, do start really hitting. I mean, we're talking when millions and, and millions of people. But should we be concentrating more on the policy failures and reporting 
the science as fact and no longer wasting time still arguing, as we often do in this country, whether it's real or not, whatever. Tim? And, and, and Kyle in America too, because I, just I suspect it's similar. So taken up with what Dewey said, of course it should be about policy. So if you just substitute palm oil for oil, your air pollution problem's gonna stay the same, right? <clears throat> we need a holistic transition away from this, and that's why we need to declare a climate emergency and to put this front and centre, see it in, in all of its manifestations, see the impacts of the subsidies that Indonesia offers for, for kerosene and for other fuels, and let's say we're going to restructure this over time, you know, to create a much better outcome all around. So it has to be policy-focused, Kerry, it absolutely has to be. Now, is that the case in America, or, or are you saying that there are still a great mass of people who just aren't switched on enough to the, to the fundamental before you even get to trying, as a media, keep politicians honest on the policy? Because here, sorry, Kyle, because here we have non-policy, non-effective policy being dressed up as effective policy, and you, if, you, if you're clever enough in the selling of it, enough people believe it. I mean, I think it has to be both. I mean, I think the... I, I do think, and it's, and it's the case of the coverage of a lot of issues um, in our politics in the US where we're so caught up in the infighting and we're so caught up in the, um, the political back and forth that we, we lose the bigger picture about what the story is really about. I mentioned these stats on, on what, what the networks did. Even um, with their limited coverage, some, something like 80% of all the coverage was about the fight. It wasn't about the policy, it was about this person said this, this person said this, this person said this. And again, this is a journalistic failure. I mean, we don't have to get drawn into this. Um, I, think the way to, I think the way to start this, and I think you know, we have to acknowledge that even though there's some very sophisticated climate reporting going on at a few um, um, outlets in the US and clearly around the world, for most small, mid-sized, medium-sized news outlets, we're really starting in, at, at a very sort of basic stage. And to me, it's really just about tell the story of what's happening in your community. Don't worry right now about national policy. Just tell me what's happening that's affecting my life. And I think that's the beginning to build, to build this change. It could take a long time. It could take a long time. And, and, and you know, as, as Tim said, we don't have a long time. But... Um, you know, we, we, have to, we, have to, we have to get it moving. Um, but, you know, you, you can, we can't throw up our hands. That's really not the choice you, that we have. I think part of, a big part of it is that journalist is losing or has lost its way. I know that's a generalisation, but when you look at the kind of, the trivialisation of news on most television, for a start, this kind of fear about, uh, about traditional models uh, uh, collapsing because of digitisation, and organizations not really knowing how to respond to it. Well, I do think that that's part of the tragedy of this moment that we're in, is that the, the need for aggressive, massive climate coverage is coming at exactly the time that the business model for journalism is collapsing. We have in the US, as you have all around the world, news deserts um, where you just have no coverage, and you have, there's all, we come up with these clever analogies, but we also have Ghost newspapers where the paper exists, but there's so few people working in there that they're really not able to do the job that, that they're supposed to be doing. So that's happening, and that's a reality at, at the time when this is happening. And so if, we were, if our approach was to say, you need to hire a climate reporter, that's completely unrealistic. It is not going to happen for most places. So what we're trying to do is just tell people, 
Just take the reporters you have. Take your sports reporter, your, um, your city hall reporter, your crime reporter, and just make sure they understand the effect of climate change. Just one other thought, and then I'll be quiet. Um, somebody else, uh, Anna mentioned um, uh, meteorologists, TV yes. weather people. Those people, that, one of the sort of unheralded stories in the U.S., of people who are really getting the effect of climate change is local TV weather people. They are on this. In fact, there's a group, there's a nonprofit group in the US that's organizing them. Because if you think about it, in your community, the TV weather person is probably the closest person to a scientist that you know. Um, and they have amazing... In a few cases, I know, God help us. <laughs> they, well, they, they have... Some of it's illusory. They have amazing, um, they have credibility in their community. So to get them on board to talk, to, to make the link between what's happening in the weather and the climate is a huge thing. Mm. Anna, just briefly from you before we go to questions, and, and I'll mention this now so you've got a chance to make your way over near the exit sign. There's one microphone at the foot of the stairs. Uh, they're both on this side, sorry. Um, and the other one is, is above, pretty much immediately above, just on the other side of the railing on that side. Uh, Anna. I think news... Media as an organisation um, has the opportunity to tell a story both through their own reporters, their sports reporter, their business reporter, but also through giving a platform to effective communicators and to campaigners on the issue and to scientists. And a few months ago, the ABC did a Q&A special uh, about science in general. Climate change was one of the things that was covered. And we might think that we don't need to keep retelling the science because most Australians now accept it. But um, I was really interested to read that there was a South Australian politician in his 80s, John Daly, who watched that Q&A science special. He had been a climate sceptic all his life and after watching it changed his mind and did an incredible speech in the South Australian Parliament about how seeing these scientists um, really changed him. And so we might think we're saying it for the millionth time, but for some people it will always be the first. Okay, do we, can we have the lights up slightly so we can... Okay, we've got some people at the microphone at one. Have we got somebody at, upstairs? You can see the big two there. The questions and the answers are going to be very interesting, so don't leave. Okay, question. Hi. From one. Um, my question is... <laughs> can I... Um, Ask people not to leave, please. It's, uh, it is unfair on the people there, apart from anything else. You'll get your chance to get to the next session. Please. Okay. Please speak. All right. How can journalists and or the general public get the attention of policymakers? And by extension, what can the informed public do to influence climate action in their daily lives when the policymakers aren't listening? Anna? So the last thing on what people can do, I'll just jump straight yep. to that. Yes. Um, really, there are four things that I think we can all do. One is we can help build the movement and everyone can get involved in the thousands of organisations that exist. Secondly, we can help change the story. We can talk to our friends and family. We can write our own content, we can make our own videos and get the story out there in our own way. And we can write to the journalists that we read and ask them to do more coverage and better coverage on climate. Thirdly, we can help shift the money, and this is the divestment campaign um, that The Guardian has actually been involved in promoting, so we can look at our own superannuation and banks and insurance and the institutions that we're part of and get them to shift their money out of fossil fuels. And lastly, we need to change the politics. So as you said, politicians aren't listening, but let's think about all three levels of government. There's the city power 
um, partnership which is focused on local government. There's some really interesting stuff happening at state governments all around Australia and we can't afford to give up on our federal politicians either. Like, just call them every week. Go to their office, talk to them. We all need to be doing this all the time. Anyone else got a quick ad? No? Um, just very quickly, I, I think um, particularly uh, in Indonesia, there's only so much that the government can do. I mean, they have all these other priorities and there's so much budget that can, you know, they can focus on these things. But I think what the journalists and the, particularly the media can do, we can actually do a, disseminate a lot of information and, uh, and do stories where people, you know, ordinary people, young people, they, a lot of them have their own initiatives on, you know, cleaning their environment, for example, or setting up waste banks, and also, you know, basically fighting to get plastic, single-use plastic bags of supermarkets and so on and so forth. So, so we do a lot of stories on those, and, and that sort of generates its own um, sort of excitement and it makes people much more aware about the importance of keeping their environment clean and you know keeping track of the carbon footprints because at the end of the day it's all about our behavior each, each and every one of us so it's not just about you know policies actually 40 percent of, of what's happening what we, we do out there it's it's because of our own actions and one of the things that uh, Indonesians are not very good at, but they're good when they go to Singapore, for example. Every, every time you throw away rubbish, you get fined. But unless you enforce these kinds of you know, things, where be, you have to change your behavior. For, uh, for example, have, restaurants shouldn't be allowed to have plastic straws anymore, for example, or you know, have glasses. You know, um, instead of water bottles and things like that. Plus also creating creative uses for waste um, management, making bricks out of plastic bottles and you know, that kind of thing. Because if you rely on the government, if you rely on the existing infrastructures, if you rely on the, the industry, for example, it's not in anybody's interest to actually do you know, do those things. So, so we, you have to do a lot of stories on those kind of initiatives. Next, next question. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to reiterate what you've just said. Um, I was amazed at the number of people who walked into this who were obviously worried about the climate but had takeaway coffee cups. Who uses a takeaway coffee cup and is still worried about the, um, the climate? Who uses a plastic bag at the supermarket? Who buys bottled water? Question. Um, <laughs> how can we get um, more people... I've given up on the government. But if I see someone buying bottled water, I'll say to them, why are you buying bottled water? Why don't you bring your own coffee cup? What can we do to get the community involved? I've given up on the government. I think you've kind of answered that. Anything to add? <laughs> no, but, but she didn't answer it. It's all, what can we do? Statement. Thank you. Okay. Pe let people take the message. Thanks. Next question. There's, the discussion's been about reporting about uh, climate change, as I guess, as a scientific issue. But uh, don't you think that the media has a stronger role to play in discussing the human and organisational aspects that are actually promoting the denial and doubt? Um, the role, the uh, promoting that role of the the interaction between politicians and and fossil fuel money, uh, the way that uh, large money has influenced the media. Uh, don't you think there's a stronger role for the, the media in all that? Kyle? I think there is. I mean, I think the media has been um, um, derelict and sort of 
repeating some, you know, and not, not thinking through who it is that they're talking to and what their connection is to fossil fuel companies or to lobbyists. And um, there's been some great, there has been some great reporting about that. Um, but I think it's part of the story. It's a, it's a big story. It's a, it's a, it takes a lot of resources to tell that story because you're up against very sophisticated um, institutions. Um, I mean, um, Inside Climate News and others have done amazing work on this. But isn't, isn't this also a part of the problem that we talked about just a few moments ago, which was the collapsing traditional commercial models, that fewer people in newsrooms, less experience in newsrooms, many more circumstances in newsrooms where uh, material is coming in without the time and the resources to properly check before it's processed through. So those kinds of vested interests, to some degree at least, are getting away with putting out press releases, circulating information which isn't properly checked. You, I, yeah, I mean, and Tim can also speak to this, but I, I think that, I mean, let's just begin with the premise that the scientific community is, is in complete consensus. <laughs> so if you're interviewing somebody who is not in that consensus, you might want to take a look at who that person is. Yeah. Emily? Absolutely. I just wanted to add that, um, you know, in, I feel remiss in that for years now I've dealt with climate sceptics on the media a bit like they're the mad uncle at the Christmas dinner, you know? You kind of, they're not. They're actually really dangerous, right? They are threatening my family. They're threatening the future of my children and that is very, very personal and I no longer take an attitude that is anything but absolutely hard line, right? Those words are fighting words, right? I'm taking the gloves off and things are going to get very tough from here on, and I think the media need to take the same attitude. This Prime Minister and this government potentially are signing a death warrant of the Great Barrier Reef as they go on. Therein, Is that acceptable? So therein lies a problem for journalists. <laughs> How the journalists harden their line, as you put it, toughen up, as you put it, without becoming activists themselves. I can actually, I can, I can accept an argument that says We've reached the, time, the point where the, the climate is settled. We should no longer be having to engage that. We should be focused much more. I mean, this issue of calling uh, climate change climate emergency or a climate sceptic is an actual climate denier. Um, but why, well, but when did we get in the mode that reporting contentious stories is activism? Like, you know, if, if I'm reporting on on immigration policy that's leaving kids caged in the borders, is that activism or is that just journalism? Mm. Um, Can be a fine line. It's not a fine line, I don't think. Well, in the way you, in the way you, in the way you tell the story. If you, if you Somewhere in there, there has to be some objectivity. And I, of course. And I don't mean by that that you give, of course, uh, but, give but, time but, to somebody who is, a, who is a fake or a phony or a, a complete liar. Right, but somehow we've, 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 um, isolated this climate story as being particularly fraught, as being particularly um, um, fuzzy for journalists, that, 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 that where this line between activism and reporting is particularly sort of um, um, difficult. We, but we deal with this every day. And every story that we do, we, we stay on the reporting side of the line. We can do it in this case, too. I just think... So as long as it's based in fact. Of course. Go for it. Of course. Yeah. But, Kerry, can I... I'm, you know... You, Journalism as activism, and if anything, I think when it comes to climate issues, because it's all our issues, it's not, you know, we only have one planet and we all live in it. This, this is not about activism, activism, because, you know, the, journalists should be 
very... Um, Active. No, 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 they should be very passionate at dealing about this because it, it, it relates to all our lives. I mean, a, a, lot of, a lot of the stuff that we put at headlines is, you know, dis disaster-based news, for example, and the images that come out there um, of um, seahorse with a, with a plastic Q-tip, for example, or a beached whale whose stomach is full of plastic, or turtle because dying of plastic. I mean, of course you have to be an activist. I mean, you can't say, oh, you have to be objective, cover both sides. Both sides of what? We, we are ruining our nature. We have to speak for the environment. We have to speak for nature. Obviously, you know, the things that we're doing is not working. So what we should be doing in journalism is actually educating, even, you know, the government. Yeah. The thing is with government, they're all short-term thinkers because every five years there's another election, there's another person there. So, you know, we don't really want to rely too much on them, but it's each and every one of us. And there's so much story, I mean, so many stories out there with really distressing images, you know, like mountains of garbage or landslides or forest burning. This is constant. I mean, you have it now with the Amazon burning, for example. Then and if you have a failure of... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so if you, if you have a failure of policy on top of that and you have people... Uh, there is the syndrome of people paralysed by fear. I know that gets used by some as, as another factor to dampen the debate. But there is an element, isn't there, of people switching off because it's all too hard. That's part of the reason the people are so cynical of politicians. Well, it's not just the politicians. It's the business people as well. Mm. For example, you know, there should be a green economy should be part of the business communities. For example, how to, how to produce, I don't know, bottled water with as few, you know, using natural resources as possible, for example, and, and, and that kind of thing. I think uh, how to create packages that are recyclable as opposed to, you know, packages that, you know, you, you throw away and then you don't care uh, where they end up because everything is all connected. I want to try and get another couple of questions in. If we can now keep it tight and I'll shut up. Yeah, uh, my questions. question was actually directly related to what you were saying. We know that when we're bombarded with negative news all the time, it does actually shut down our limbic system, which, you know, is where we solve problems and are creative. So, what role does the media play in, in offering solutions and hope, and are there any great examples you've seen out there? Anyone? Yeah, I think it's critical that um, there should be as many stories as possible about solutions, and not just technological solutions, but also the people who are leading the way in these solutions, whether it be community, local council, business. Um, and in terms of the examples, I actually think that the city's power partnership is a really good example of where local councils are doing things, partnering with the Climate Media Centre and getting some amazing solutions focused, very positive stories throughout the Australian media, not at the level of the front page of the Australian um, or, you know, the 7.30 report, but in the news that many people read every day. And we have to tell the stories of the solutions because if we don't, people will think that it is too late and we can't solve it and this, this is the worst time to be giving up. Terry, just somebody else brought this issue up, but I do think that there's a generational difference in how people view these stories. I think that um, younger people especially view them as a source of energy and as, a, as, as, a, as a, they get angry and they get energized and they get focused They're, and not so much just turn it off. Um, in fact, you know, I think some of the, some of the members of our partnership um, at the project that we're doing view increased climate coverage as a way to improve the demographics of their audience. 
um, because they know that young people especially are reading these stories. So I think there's a, they, there's a different viewing of it depending on, on your age. I'm gonna take the question from the top and then we'll have to can it and, and I'll, I'll allow one answer from the panel because we're over time. I wanted to get your thoughts on the ethics of an article um, I saw published last year and it was saying that our waste was no longer being, or our recycling was no longer being separated, it was getting shipped off and held in factories. And I remember speaking to someone about it and they said, like, what's the point of recycling anymore then? You know, it's just ending up in warehouses and not being separated. And I kind of thought to myself, that article m may have discouraged people from getting into good habits and behaviour and potentially did a lot of damage, even though I get the intention was to get people to... Like, well, to call to account the people that were responsible for this, but I don't think it should have been published. What are your thoughts on it? Just well, getting the garbage exported to countries like Indonesia to deal with. I mean, this is, I don't think that's a very good, uh, you know, very good solution. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we, we live in one big house, and if you think, oh, okay, as long as my bedroom is nice and clean and fresh and everything, it doesn't matter if there's a fire in the kitchen or in the lounge. I mean, you know, the thing about climate um, and environmental issues is we're all affected by it, you know, we all depend on one another to collaborate. And one, I think one of the um, sad things about this Paris Agreement and then having uh, somebody like President Trump, you know, wanting to walk out on it, is that, you know, this isn't the argument that developing countries, it's, it's a payback time, we also need to achieve that kind of level of modernity and progress as, you know, the rest of the developed world. No, we can leapfrog through technology, we can leapfrog through, you know, clean energy in order to achieve that kind of standard of living, which is, which is decent. And without help from uh, developed countries, without commitment, it's, it's very, very difficult for countries like Indonesia to be able to achieve. For example, uh, with business as usual, Indonesia's promise that we can reduce the emission by 29% by 2030. But with international aid, we could actually, so the government says, you know, reduce it by 41%, which is a substantial amount. But this is what's lacking. This is, you know, it's as if we are living on completely different planets. You know, whereas actually, if you look at now the Greenland's, you know, melting and the Arctic's melting and Iceland's lost its glaze, I mean, this is a global yeah. thing. And I think there has to be a sense of urgency on every level of uh, society. Tim, Tim, Tim is going to give us a 30-second closer. Sure. Look, I think the article should have been published. It should have caused outrage. You've done your bit in terms of recycling. The companies and governments that we've placed our trust in have failed. So we need to reset and do something. I wouldn't just sit back and take it and just say, oh, I'm not going to bother recycling. Yeah. I just saw the immediate backlash. I'm sorry, we're, we're out of time. We are out of time. Thank you very much for staying. Great <laughs> right, right deal of thanks. Great right deal of thanks to the panel.